Welcome to the ACC Podcast. My name's Tyler Birch. I'm a minister here at Anacortes Christian Church. We hope our weekly messages are a resource to help you grow spiritually and that they would bring you closer with God and His Son, Jesus. If you want more info about ACC, find us on Facebook or check out our website, anacortischristian.church. Enjoy the message. We are going through the book of Hebrews, and we're in chapter 3 this week. And so I'm going to read from Hebrews Three. Actually, we're going to read the whole chapter, 19 verses. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to follow along. If not, it should be on the screen if the screen doesn't die. All right, Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pause and would you pray with me again? Father, I want to pray for for clarity today as you impart this word to us. Help me, God, to speak it clearly. Lord, there is um, wilderness And there's a hope of rest. And the call, the challenge is, Lord, will we be faithful in the midst of testing and in the wilderness? And would you communicate today to us the stuff, the stuff of faithfulness? Produce it in our hearts, God, so that we would be steadfast and hold fast to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so we just bit off a big chunk there, and there's a reason for that. 
the author is building up to a main point, a main challenge, a main argument, and he takes kind of the whole chapter to get up to that point. But we saw it. It's a warning. It's in verse 19. He says, so we see that they were unable to enter. Enter what? To enter God's rest. Okay, they were unable to enter God's rest because of unbelief. So there's a warning here. He's pointing to a period of time in history in which the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, and he's saying that that is analogous to where the church is at today. Okay, it's a crucial in-between time, a time of testing. The Israelites had been set free from Egypt. They were liberated. They went through the Red Sea. They had experienced God's miracles. They had experienced his salvation. And they had received promises, promises to be delivered to a fruitful land flowing with milk and honey, God's rest, you might say. But in between was the wilderness. They had to travel through the wilderness, and they had to go a long way around for reasons we won't get into today. And when the going got tough, when they didn't know how they were going to find food and water, what did they do? They grumbled. Right? They doubted God's goodness. They accused him of bringing, out, him out, bringing them out of Egypt just to die. And this happened again and again, and eventually they were um, unfaithful and committed infidelity against their God. They worshiped a statue made of gold and so on. And so the author is quoting Psalm 95 and several other passages that point to that time as a warning don't make the same mistake. They were sentenced to die in the wilderness and not enter the land or God's rest. He says, Moses was faithful in the wilderness over God's house. God's house is God's people, Israel, the people of Israel. Actually, as a servant in God's house, I should clarify that. Meaning that though he was tempted at times, multiple times he said, what am I supposed to do with these stiff-necked people? They're going to kill me. They're going to stone me to death. They're going to, you know, Lord, I can't bear this burden anymore. Imperfect though Moses was, he remained faithful in the wilderness, though not perfectly. In fact, he himself didn't get to enter into the land because he doubted at one point and he didn't obey God. But for the most part, he didn't doubt God's promise for the people of God uh, or God's intention or God's character. He trusted. That's what belief means in this chapter. It's not calling us just to agree to a set of statements or principles or doctrines, but trust. Trust that endures testing in the wilderness. Jesus was faithful in the wilderness. Our passage last week said that Jesus suffered when tested or tempted, and therefore he's able to help those who are being tested. So what? What does that mean? It means that in the wilderness, when he was tempted by the devil, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was in agony over what was coming, and on the cross, Jesus did not pull out. He did not abandon his post when the going got tough. He remained faithful and chose to endure suffering rather than doubt or betray 
the one who had appointed him. He wasn't in the wilderness accusing God of luring him through the waters and into the desert just to die, though while he was in there, we went 40 days without food, he was very hungry. And I'm thirsty. My, my throat's dry here. And he wasn't like the older brother in the prodigal son story, the older brother of the household who rebuked the father when the younger son, the prodigal, returned because his inheritance was threatened. No, he's the true older brother who welcomed the prodigal as a brother in the household of the father that the older son would inherit. And we are that household, he says. We are the brothers and sisters welcomed in because Jesus partook of flesh and blood, as Mark said last week, so that we who share flesh and blood could partake, as it says this week, in a heavenly calling. Jesus came down so we could ascend. He brought about the propitiation for our sins by tasting death for us all so that we are no longer under its slavery. We've been brought through the waters. We look forward to his rest. But the big question is, while we're still in the wilderness, will we remain faithful? Will we faithfully remain in his house in the wilderness? And when it says the Israelites were unable to enter his rest because of unbelief, I looked up that Greek word for unbelief. Again, it doesn't simply mean that they denied the existence of God or something like that. No, they had seen God's works. They believed in him, but they didn't believe him. The definition said a lacking in confidence in Christ's power or in general, a lack of trust in the God of promise. How many of you have experienced a literal harrowing wilderness experience of some kind? How many? Yeah, quite a few of you. Actually, not very many of you, but a, a few of you have. Um, yeah, for me, I've got a great memory it's great now in hindsight. It wasn't great at the time. Um, our seventh grade survival trip when I was in middle school. I went to a private school in seventh grade, um, which means that teachers could get away with a lot more than public school teachers could, especially back in that time. The survival trip was a big deal. It was sort of a rite of passage at the end of the year. And, and there's a lot of buildup to it. There was training and preparation for it. And I was really excited to go. It was like the stories, like a Gary Paulson book. My son's reading some of his books these days. I got myself a hatchet. We had to pack all of our food. It had to all fit in a Folgers coffee can. We were going to use that can for cooking out of, you know. We were allowed to pack in a sheet of plastic visqueen and some string. And that was our shelter. You know, you had to use that. You had to learn how to make a shelter out of it. We, had, we got to bring a sleeping bag, a change of clothes, some rain gear, some boots. And that was about it. Needless to say, though, our packs weighed about 50 pounds, and we're these scrawny little seventh graders. And the principal of our school, Mr. Linder, was going to be leading this trip. Now, this is up in Ketchikan, Alaska. And Mr. Linder was a true Alaskan outdoorsman. Okay, I think he was actually a bush pilot. Um, he knew his way around the wilderness. Okay, so when the day came, we piled into a bus. 
not knowing where we were going. We headed up a logging road, and then we stopped at a lake. But this was not our final destination. Oh, no. That would be too easy. Mr. Linder pointed to the woods, and he said, we're going that way. And it wasn't just woods. It was a mountainside that went up and up for a long ways. The journey was a nightmare. There was no trail that we were following. It was just dense brush, devil's club. You know what devil's club is? Yeah, some of you, yeah. Devil's club, you, they, we've got it around here in kind of the swampy areas. It's like a, a big stalk with a leaf on it that's just covered in thorns. It's like from the devil, okay? It's devil's club. <laughs> there was muskeg and mosquitoes. You know what muskeg is? Muskeg is when you've got like a swamp or boggy area that's totally filled in with moss so that you can basically walk across it. It's kind of spongy, you know? Um, but sometimes the muskeg isn't as thick as it looks and, and you can fall through, which happened. Uh, as we're cruising along, we're kind of tromping, slogging through the muskeg and the girl in front of me, just, she just suddenly went down, just, boom, you know, straight down up to her shoulders in water. And so I had, to, I had to drop my pack and I had to go and I had to pull her out of the pit in the muskeg and the mosquitoes were terrible. <clears throat> we got to rest for a while and he was like, go, go climb under some shrubbery or something. It'll make it not so bad. It was, they still were bad and they bit like crazy. We finally made it to our destination. <clears throat> it was a remote lake. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> it was practically untouched by any human encounter. The girls set up their camp over here. They did that by joining all their tarps together and made kind of one big shelter. They called it Hotel Crapifornia. <laughs> and at one point, the rainwater pooled up on it and the whole thing just caved in <laughs> on top of them. The guys, we were smarter than that. We kept our, our camp separate. Our camp we named Purgatory. But I was so exhausted by that journey that I didn't put a lot of effort into my shelter. It was like, if it stays up, if it's good, it, it's fine. I don't need much. That night it rained. I had gone to bed in a t-shirt and sweatpants. I woke up with the bottom third of my sleeping bag completely soaked and cold as ice. I couldn't see a thing. I was trying to find a flashlight. I didn't have a clue how I was going to warm myself up. I couldn't find my stuff. I couldn't build a fire. It's wet outside. I thought I was going to get hypothermia and die. Um, now, earlier, we had, a, we had a kid who was particularly mischievous named Leif. And um, he kind of broke the rules and tried to sneak a butane stove into his pack <laughs> as he went and we weren't supposed to do that. And so uh, the, one of the chaperones confiscated the butane stove from Leif. And, um, but he must have got it back at some point, maybe under the condition that he wouldn't use it. But as I sat there freezing in my shelter, figuring out what to do, I heard noise outside. And it was that very chaperone waking up Leif saying, where's your camp stove? I am freezing. Okay. <laughs> And so by three o'clock in the morning, 
we had a campfire going and all the guys were huddled around this fire trying to keep warm and we like hacked down a big tree with our hatchets and used it for firewood and stuff like that. But there was no rest in the wilderness. It was hard. Um, things did not go as I imagined they would. It was a time of testing. And we were tested like that. What do you think we were tempted to do? We all lost faith in Mr. Linder. We grumbled. We doubted his wisdom. We were seventh graders. He was an experienced outdoorsman, yet we were sure we knew better. One of the girls pretended to be ill so that she wouldn't have to make the return journey, and they literally flew in a float plane to take her out. And then she later admitted that she was faking it. (laughs) And to this day, I'm pretty sure that Mr. Linder was enjoying himself. (laughs) In fact, when it came time to return home, he revealed, much to our uh, relief and resentment, that there was, in fact, a trail that we could have taken (laughs) into this lake. It wasn't much of a trail. It was just marked by, like, colorful tape tied to tree branches and stuff like that, but it was way easier going out than it was coming in. No rest in the wilderness. When tested, we grumbled, we doubted, we lost faith, and yet Mr. Linder delivered us safely through. And those memories of that time are priceless. I can remember sitting at that calm lake in the evening, listening to wolves howl in the distance and just thinking, wow, this is Kind of cool, even though I wouldn't have admitted it, that it was cool at the time. In many ways, life in this present age is wilderness. In other words, very often things don't go the way they were meant to. But that's not the way that it has always been. The creation story in Genesis 1 culminates with rest. Okay, God rested from his work, which doesn't mean that he was tired and needed a break. It means he was fully satisfied in. He could rest in the work that he had done. What does rest really look like in this picture? It doesn't necessarily mean the absence of work or effort. Genesis 2, the man is put in the garden to work and keep it. And yet they're free to feast on any of the trees in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was work, but the work yielded what it was supposed to. There was satisfaction in the work. There was no lacking. There was abundance. There was rest. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they were exiled out of the garden into the what? The wilderness. You're still going to eat from the fruit of your labor, but the ground in the wilderness just doesn't produce the way the garden does. In painful toil, you will eat of the ground, and it will bear thorns and thistles for you. Through sweat, you will produce your food until eventually you die and return to the ground. The ground wins. There's no rest, ultimately, in the wilderness. Adam's and Eve's son Cain is a worker of the ground like Adam. Perhaps he can set things right for humanity and get things back on track. But when he was tested, he proved unfaithful. 
He's tested because God showed favor to his brother's offering above his own, but God reassured him of a promise. He said, hey, sin is crouching at your door, waiting to pounce. But if you do well, you know, if you, if you listen, it will go well for you. But he didn't believe God. Instead, he rose up, he took matters into his own hands, he killed his brother, and as a result, he was exiled further into the wilderness. And God said, the ground will not produce for you at all. It's going to be tough. The Israelites in the wilderness could not produce food. They had to rely completely on God's provision of manna and water from the rock. But those who were sentenced to return to dust in the wilderness before crossing the Jordan, they had a hope, and that hope was that the next generation would enter his rest. They would cross into the promised land. But of course, God's plan to restore Eden through Israel didn't go so well, and they themselves proved to be unfaithful through infidelity with other gods again and again and again. And fast forward, when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, he immediately went into the wilderness. Baptism, just like passing through the waters in the Red Sea. The Spirit coming down, just like the Spirit coming down on the Israelites and the pillar of fire. He goes into the wilderness where he was tested. He didn't eat anything for 40 days and he was hungry. There's no comfort there. There's no rest, no satisfaction in the wilderness, yet he remained Faithful, He trusted his father and didn't take matters into his own hands. Man does not live by bread alone, he quotes, but by every word that comes from God. Life, rest, satisfaction comes through trusting God's word. Life is a strange mix today. We see little glimpses of Eden here and there. We have times of rest. We know what it is to be satisfied. And that's why God gave us the Sabbath as a commandment, not because we need to be obedient, but because he knew we need rest. As Jesus said, it's made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We need rest. Yet so often things don't work the way they're supposed to. The wilderness just doesn't yield like a garden. There is literal hunger when we should be able to feed everyone. Sometimes there are literal farmers who work the ground and they do everything just right, but disaster strikes and they lose everything. It happens. Or sometimes you launch out and you start a business. You follow all the methods and methodologies. Something happens, some ill-suited malpractice suit or something. There's disaster. Things don't work the way they're supposed to. And there's anxiety and fear. You lose your job. You don't know where comfort will come from. There's no rest. Marriage can prove to be a wilderness. It can be so frustrating. It seems like two people should be able to make this thing work. But every step is like slogging through a wilderness trail full of muskeg and devil's club. Right? Plenty of puns intended there. It's not always like that. But some people are in that place. When you're a new parent, you have visions of what it's going to be like, but you find that you don't really have as much control over the formation of your child's personality and character as you hoped you would. You plant all the seeds that should produce fruit, but the wilderness isn't the garden. And what's growing up from the ground doesn't seem to be what you imagined it would be. 
We have 15 pumpkins on our front porch right now that we grew. And um, we didn't purchase any pumpkin seeds. It was like a mislabeled package. And uh, so, you know, we've got kale and carrots and all of a sudden pumpkins just took off everywhere. Sometimes what you get is not what you expect. Sometimes there's pain and toil, dealing with mental illness, physical deterioration, getting old. And so if I can just ask you, where are you at right now? Are you experiencing rest and satisfaction in general, or do you feel some reality of the wilderness? Are you tired? Are you being tested? I think there are people in this room for whom the testing is relentless. Things are just not going the way they should. So what do we get from this passage to help in those times? First, we have to remind ourselves that testing doesn't equal a lack of God's love or his goodness. The nature of this passage seems to reveal a human tendency to doubt God when the going gets tough, just like doubting Mr. Linder when the going got tough. Tough. We seem to think that just because we've gone through the Red Sea, we've been baptized, we put our trust in Jesus, that things are never going to be hard now. There are churches that preach this today, that if you're good enough, if you've got your act together, or you give the church enough money, you're not going to have any testing or suffering in this life. They are lying to you. Okay? That's not true. So rather than trying to hitch a ride on a float plane and escape... She missed out on the wolves in the sunset. Trying to take the easy way out by seeking comfort. Rather than that, what do we do? One, we look to Jesus. Dig into Jesus. Go deeper in Jesus. Our passage started with, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. What does that mean? Again, last week in chapter 2, it ended with verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted or tested, he is able to help those who are being tested or tempted. Jesus suffered in the wilderness, in the garden, and on the cross. He suffered humiliation in his ministry. He suffered rejection. He suffered mockery. He suffered violence. And he remained faithful to the Father who appointed him. He didn't doubt the Father or his goodness in those times. He knew that there was true rest, that there was satisfaction, that there's healing, that there's flourishing, etc. on the other side. They're waiting for him there across the Jordan, resurrection, exaltation. And so he helps us to stay faithful in the wilderness because he alone can say, I've been through everything you can imagine and more. I've seen the other side and I can tell you that it's worth it. No, believe that you have been chosen and set apart as holy brothers and sisters. Believe that I am building you into his house. Believe that you are partakers of Christ and of that heavenly calling. A little disclaimer here. 
Faithfulness in the wilderness doesn't mean that we stuff our feelings and emotions and pretend everything is just peachy all the time. No. Jesus sweat drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. Over half of the Psalms are complaints. God can handle your complaints. He can handle our yelling matches in the car. But there is a difference between complaining, being taken to God, and grumbling about God. His anger was provoked in the wilderness when complaining turned into resentful accusation, rebellion, sin, and a hardening of heart against him. This brings up a question, though, and we'll see this again in Hebrews. Can one lose their salvation? Can, are you once saved, always saved? And this gets into a whole, you know, Reformation argument that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on today. But the picture that we get is what is God looking for? What is he really looking for? Is he looking for moral performance, good works? He's, he's looking for faithfulness. Faithfulness as in I trust you, not just I believe in you. What's the warning? The warning is unbelief. And when you look up that word for unbelief, again, it's unfaithfulness, infidelity, a kind of unfaithfulness. They believed in God. They didn't believe God. Verse 16, for who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Of course they believed in God. They had seen the pillar. They had seen the waters part. They had seen his miracles. But when tested, they chose not to believe God. This means that our salvation is more than just buying into a set of beliefs or principles. It's not just believing in God having our sins forgiven, receiving the gift of adoption as sons and daughters, passing through the waters, surrendering to him, you can't earn your salvation. It is a free gift, but it is also fidelity to the one who gave you that gift. It is faithfulness. He's looking for faith, saved by grace through faith. I trust you. Okay, Mike, so you're saying that when you become a Christian... Uh, that you can become a Christian, but you can lose your salvation. Is it contingent, therefore, on works? You know, I just, uh, this week was, um, even like two days ago, happened to see someone posted on an Anacortes page about the high schoolers who organized a big rally protesting man-made global warming. And so now I, I don't know, you know, I'm not going to argue about what side is what or who believes what or who's right and who's wrong, but plenty of people did on that post, like 330-something comments of people just ridiculing each other, which, um, man, the internet brings out something inside. I mean, does it produce that something, or does it just reveal it? Because I don't trust people today. You know, like, if they can be these monsters online but smile at you in Safeway, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, who are people, really? Um, but, but, you know, you've got one argument saying, we're just fear-mongering all these kids to believe that the world's going to end in 12 years because of fossil fuels and, and all that good stuff. Bad stuff, I guess. Um, and then you've got this other side. This guy just chimes in. I don't know how this correlates to the argument, but, oh, yeah, well, in all the churches, they're, te- they're fear-mongering, teaching the kids that they better conform to their behavior or they're going to burn in hell. Is that what all the churches are preaching 
I hope not. Because that's not the message of the gospel. That's not Christianity. No. But, let's see. Neither gaining nor losing your salvation is contingent upon whether there is sin in your life. In this passage, sin plays a part, but the key issue is unbelief, unfaithfulness. Sin deceives us, convincing us to place our confidence and comfort in something else, causing us to harden our hearts, yielding disobedience and ultimately unbelief or rather unfaithfulness, a lack of trust in the God of promise. One might still believe in God, but not believe God. We aren't talking about a God who kicks people out for blowing it. We're talking about people who reject their salvation because they refuse to continue to trust that he is good and will lead us to rest. So he says, look to Jesus He suffered when tested. He remained faithful. He believed his father to be trustworthy and his resurrection vindicated that as truth. Trust him. Two, remember who you are in Christ. How did Jesus get through his temptation when he was in the wilderness? Remember the waters parted. He was baptized The sky is parted. The water's above. Use biblical language. The spirit comes down. What does the voice say? It says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he takes that into the wilderness. And the next episode is him in the wilderness, starving for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. What does the devil say to him every time? If you really are God's son, why are you going hungry? You could turn those loaves into bread. Why trust God? Why would he put you through testing? Bow down to me and I'll just give you all the nations of the world. Trying to get him to doubt who he is as God's son. So what does our passage say about us? Backing up to last week's message that Mark preached began with, we are children who share in flesh and blood. We're a part of what returns to dust. We are living in the wilderness. It says Jesus partook of the same things, became one of us. We were delivered from lifelong slavery to fear of death. We are the offspring of Abraham, the children who receive the promise of his hope of restoration and healing, whom Jesus helps. We are his brothers. He was made like us in every respect. When tested, when tempted, he's able to help us. We are holy brothers, meaning that God chose you and set you apart for himself to share, to partake in a heavenly calling. We are his house, his household, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We have come to share in Christ himself if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So remind yourself of who you are in Christ. We need to do that. And third, we have to exhort one another.
Verse 13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, I, I looked up that word because when I hear the word exhort, uh, maybe it was my upbringing. I don't know what your upbringing was, but I, I hear like we're called to exhort one another. Now, there's the word admonish and correct. Those are like, those are things we need to do. But exhort doesn't mean come alongside each other and, and tell each other all the things you did wrong. Okay, that's not exhortation. The word exhortation, in this passage anyway, is the Greek word uh, parakaleo which is the same root as the word paraclete, which means helper. It's the word given to the Holy Spirit. And literally translated, it means to call to aid or to call to someone's side to help them, to lift them up, to carry them. Exhortation is when Alice, that girl, falls into the muskeg pit. It's coming along and pulling her back out. That's what we're called to do for each other. So what's that look like? How do you do that? Well, this passage has been exhorting us. I just read a series of statements all the way through the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3 about who you are in Christ. You have to have that reinforced, and we have to reinforce that in one another constantly. Why? Because you are constantly being exhorted by a lot of other messages and false truths. You're being exhorted to dress a certain way or there's no satisfaction for you. You're, ex you're being exhorted to actualize your sexuality a certain way or you just won't find real love. You're being exhorted to buy into some message or another and it's on every Netflix show, it's on every Facebook ad, it's on every message, every billboard, every commercial, everything out there. You're being exhorted to seek comfort for yourself, to trust in your own goodness instead of in God. And you'll build a house and have rest just fine out here in the wilderness. It'll be your own little paradise. You're being exhorted all the time. And if you are alone in your walk with God, if you are isolated right now, you will not make it. Because you will listen to a thousand other voices 24-7 and 40 minutes on Sunday can't compete with that. If this is the only time you ever hear who you are in Christ to give you the fortitude when testing comes not to abandon our trust in him, what do we have? I'm so thankful for our small group that we're in come to a place where I think we have a trust for one another, and there's reinforcement, there's exhortation there. I'm so thankful for a friend of mine that I walk with or drive with every week, once a week. He's not afraid to tell me how it is when I'm wrong or when I'm just grumbling, but he is also one who exhorts, and I can't tell you what a difference that has made as, as one who preaches in a church because there's so many ways I can beat myself down or listen to other messages or what I need to do to be acceptable or all those things, but there's a voice that's constant that reminds me who I am in Christ, and I can't tell you what a difference that makes. Do you have someone like that in your life? That's why we have small groups here. It's not some church gimmick. It's because someone realized the urgency. How often are we supposed to exhort one another? Every day, as long as it is called day. 
Like, husbands, do you exhort your wife? Do you build her up? Do you reinforce her foundation in Christ if you're a Christian? Do you remind her of the calling, the heavenward calling, who she is that gets her through the testing? Or do you just kind of, you know, let her know when she failed this week or blew it? Wives, do you exhort your husband? Do you build him up? Do you see him as who Christ called him to be? Or do you just pick on him? Nag him? Tear him down for his failures over and over again? Our children, you know, our relationships, our family, do you have people? Are you an exhorter? Are you someone who exhorts? Or, or do we just go it alone and isolate and kind of pick on one another or consume? Every day, as long as it is called today, go to battle against the messages that are creating an identity rooted in something other than Christ that will crumble and fall when testing comes. Every day. So if that means you've got to change some patterns today, write some things down, change your routine, um, how are you going to find someone that you can exhort? And find someone who can exhort you. That's a weird word. I'm getting tired of using it. Uh, it's not a word we use every day, right? <laughs> exhort. Sounds like snort or something. I don't know. Uh, find someone that can be a paraclete, a helper, that you can help each other slogging through the muskeg. Don't go isolated. In conclusion... We still share in flesh and blood. We will experience the wilderness and testing. And sometimes it's really, really hard. Jesus Christ partook of flesh and blood, tasted death and paid for our sins so that we could be called children of Abraham who have received a heavenly calling he partook of flesh and blood so that now we can partake in Christ. You are his house if you're in Christ, if you believe. Brothers and sisters under a household, under a name. Today, if you hear the Holy Spirit, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, with whom I am well pleased. Believe him. Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion, letting circumstances determine your opinion. Meditate on Christ. He suffered when tested and remained faithful to the one who appointed him. Therefore, we can trust as well. Remember who you are in Christ, your heavenly calling, there is rest in store. There might be some relief today, but we know that ultimately the real rest is coming. And commit to live a life of mutual exhortation. Develop a discipline, a pattern of seeking and finding and being one who exhorts one another. We're going to respond now by going to the Lord's table in communion. And what's going to happen is the ushers are going to pass out some bread and a cup of juice representing Christ's body and blood given for us as a gift.
reminding us of what he suffered, the test he endured. And the amazing thing is he didn't come down because he knew what was on the other side. He knew the family he was purchasing, you and I. He knew the glory and the rest and the satisfaction and the garden that's coming again. And it was worth it. And so today, let's take that as we um, partake of these emblems. Let's consider our own hearts, take these questions to him. How are we being tested today? Where's God in that picture? Can I trust him? Is there exhortation in my life? Am I being that for someone else? What about my family? Are there things I need to repent of and apologize for? Patterns that need to change? Let's bring that to the table with us as we meditate on what he did for us. Just a reminder that we love you and God loves you and you always have a place here at ACC. We are now back on our standard fall schedule with two services, one at 8.15 and another at 10 a.m. We hope to see you soon.